Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the Sabbath day. More than this, Lord, we're thankful for the truth you have revealed to us through your son, Jesus Christ, and entrusted us with in these last days. I pray, Father, that this time we spend this morning in worship, in study of your word, will be time that will draw us closer to you in such a way that the people we come in contact with in this coming week will know that we have been with Jesus. This is our prayer in his name. Amen. Also, I forgot to mention, the Emanuel Institute is something that we used to do as a late training program in Michigan that actually was folded into the work in the conference office. I now am not pastoring a church. I am the Associate Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Director in our conference office, and I work with Pastor Cameron DeBazier. A number of you are familiar with that because Cameron, Pastor Cameron and I do a program every week called Talking Points, which is a review of the Sabbath School lesson and highlighting the key points, giving some ideas and teaching tips to teachers and students and anybody who's interested in the lesson for that matter. So now that that's out of the way, I'm going to talk about just a little review of last night's message. Last night's message was called Born Adventist or Born Again. And it addressed how much of today's leadership those in my generation share a similar testimony of how the church they grew up in grew up in offered no assurance of salvation, a faith in the words of one leader of endless demandings and scoldings. That's how he described his growing up as an Adventist. All of these rules and all of this got to be doing this and got to be doing that. We talked about that, that uh, subject a little bit last night and identified that there's a different perspective to the truth when you're not converted. There's a different perspective to spiritual rules when you're not converted. When you've not yielded your life to Jesus, the church may feel a lot more oppressive than it is. One thing I hear a lot from young and old that have not yet committed to Jesus, they say, ah, when I go to the church, it just, they're so judgy. I feel so judged. Are you familiar with the text in Proverbs that says the wicked man flees when no one pursues? Why is he running? Because his conscience is pursuing. The Lord pursues the conscience. Well, this isn't limited to young people. There are people all through the ranks who have never fully committed to Christ. And if they haven't, their view of religion and their feeling about spiritual things is not going to be positive. In an attempt to provide more assurance, the church for the past several decades, as long as I've been in the church, I'll tell about that in a little bit, has attempted to provide a more grace-based approach, playing down Adventist distinctives or even writing them off and adopting a more simplistic, just love Jesus and know he loves you approach to religion. We want people to have assurance. That's been a big thrust, a big push. I'm glad for a person to have assurance if they've accepted Christ. But I'll tell you that what has resulted, unfortunately, is multitudes in today's church, having assurance without ever having committed their lives to Christ. Assurance of what, then, if you've not accepted Jesus as Savior? Oh, God loves me. I'm going to tell you something. God loves everybody who's going into the lake of fire as truly and as equally as he loves those going to heaven. But they've made the choice not to be with him. There are multitudes who have an assurance without ever having committed their lives fully, I should say, to Christ. A generation that uses the term relationship with Christ more often, but spends less personal time with him than any previous generation. 
And finally, a generation that knows less about the biblical reasons for the advent of faith than any that has gone before it, yet sees itself as advanced in understanding. A generation who, in the words of the Apostle Paul, has a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I resonate with this quite a bit because I think back to my experience. Now, I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There were some uh, good folks who gave my mom and dad Bible studies, and so they became first-generation Seventh-day Adventists. I lived with my mother, and my mother and my father got divorced. I lived with my mother and my stepfather, who ended up leaving the Seventh-day Adventist Church when I was about 14, 15 years old during the Desmond Ford crisis. It doesn't matter if you know that history or not, but that was in my experience. I had my time growing up in the church, and then I had my time out of the church. Interestingly enough, one of Ford's big draws in Adventism was to give people more assurance because our doctrine, primarily of the sanctuary, robbed people of assurance. That was a mindset then. It's a mindset now. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. And so I was out of the church for many years. When I was in my mid-20s, I got baptized. I was not baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist church. In fact, I don't know if I should say this, but I've never been baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist church. I joined the church by profession of faith. Through my experience, there are actually several pastors that I asked to baptize me, and something got in the way every time. And then by the, by the time I got away, I ended up in ministry, and I was like, what do you do now? Like, by the way, I'm getting baptized this weekend, folks. Come to your pastor's baptism. But anyway, I didn't get baptized in the Adventist church. I was going to the Adventist church. But I was baptized on the same day as my wife, Stephanie, was and my brother, Jim, was. Now, my brother, Jim, works in the general conference. He's been out here. Perhaps you know my brother, Jim. We were baptized on the same day of April 2, 1994. And we all told the pastor, listen, we want to be baptized, but we do not believe what the Seventh-day Adventist Church teaches about jewelry. We don't believe what the Seventh-day Adventist Church teaches about coffee. We don't believe what the church teaches about Ellen White. We're just not on board with that stuff. And the pastor said, well, that's okay. I'll just baptize you into Jesus. Now, that sounded really good then. And I've had people say, well, yeah, why don't you do? We ought to do more of that. How do you baptize somebody into Jesus without baptizing somebody in the teachings of Jesus? But here's the challenge. There are too many Adventists who really don't understand whether those things are actually teachings of Jesus or not. We talked a lot about that last night, that too many Seventh-day Adventists, and I say Seventh-day Adventists because I'm in a room of Seventh-day Adventists. But the reality is, uh, across the Christian spectrum, denominationally, many people grow up in a church and they just believe what they've been told. They've never actually studied out what they believe for themselves. And so we have a generation, as I mentioned, that has a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, I was baptized, not as a Seventh-day Adventist. We all refused that. The church I was attending in those days, ironically, was a, was a mission church designed to win the young people back to, back to the church. And so um, they were light on doctrine. Uh, they were down on Ellen White. Church dress was casual. Hymns were rarely sung. Um, that was kind of the, the tenor of how they were going to win people back. And that was cool with me as a young person. I wasn't into any of that because keep in mind, listen, <laughs> I just thought when I told the pastor, I don't want to get baptized into those certain things and accept those certain beliefs. I just thought I knew better than him or the church. I just thought my opinion, 
it, the ironic thing is this. I realized it wasn't that I disagreed with church doctrine. It's just that I thought my doctrine was better than church doctrine. Because everybody has doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching. So it's funny today. In fact, the late Pastor Richard O'Phil used to say when he said, you know, when I hear Seventh-day Adventists say, well, I'm just, I'm just not into doctrine. He says what they mean is they prefer Baptist doctrine to Adventist doctrine. We all prefer some kind of teaching. I had a teaching I went with. It just wasn't what the church taught. And I, in my mind, knew better than the church. But as I said, I came to realize later on that even, even as a church, we, the church I attended, we weren't really down on doctrine. We just had our own doctrine that we preferred. We had a zeal for God according, not according to knowledge. Go to Romans 10 with me. I want you to just see that in the scripture. Romans chapter 10, and then we're going to try to fill out some of this this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans 10. We'll start in verse 1. <clears throat> Romans 10, verse 1. The Bible says, Brethren, my heart's desire in prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear witness... I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but what? Not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for all righteous, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, there's so much I could say on this, and I can't get into the breaking down the whole passage today, but I will say this. When we talk about doctrine, again, doctrine is teaching. Christ is a doctrine. Have people say, well, we don't, let's not focus on doctrine. Let's focus on Jesus. Everything we know about Jesus is our doctrine. In fact, if you look in our 28 fundamental beliefs, one is specifically stated, stated the Father. One is stated the Son. It, whatever a person believes, the teachings they believe on something is, constitutes a doctrine. Notice it says, they being ignorant of God's righteousness, sought to establish their own. I want you to notice the, the root word there of righteousness. What's the root word? Right. Righteousness is rightness or what's right. And I want you to notice that what the Apostle Paul is saying here in this case of the Jewish nation is they had an idea of what was right that they thought was righter than God's idea of right. Or no, 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 no. They were ignorant, he says, of God's idea of right. So they sought to establish their own idea of right. The same is true for any Christian who does not know from Scripture what they believe. Then what are you going to follow? Your own idea of what's right. And he points this out as a fault with the Jewish nation. They, they, the, 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 the rightness, the right doctrine that they were supposed to accept was the doctrine that Christ was the Messiah that they'd been looking for. And had they only not been ignorant, they would have submitted their own righteousness, i.e. their idea of what was right, and chosen God's idea of what was right. So through my conversion experience, after my baptism, incidentally, <laughs> I came to understand that I had a lot to learn. There's one thing in my experience, my if I could sum up my baptism, that whole experience, my conversion experience, rather, in one word, it was humility. And I shared a little bit this last night. For once in my life, I really started taking the full responsibility for where I was. 
Wasn't blaming my parents, wasn't blaming school, wasn't blaming anything else. It's my choice. This is why I'm here. And incidentally, the reason I need Jesus isn't because of what somebody else did or what the world did is because of what I did. Jesus didn't just die for my sins on the cross. He died because of my sins. I drove the nails through his hand. Had there not been another person on this planet, it was me. It was my sin. And that, for some people, sounds like a downer, but you have to understand something. There's a lot of talk about accepting Jesus as a personal savior, but let's key in on that word personal. You can't have a personal savior if you haven't admitted you're a personal sinner. You'll have a corporate savior. And for that time, that first time in my life, I accepted that I was a personal sinner and I needed a personal savior. Man, Jesus met me right there and changed my life, changed my perspective, changed my view on all of these things that I thought I was so right about. As I said, I realized I had a lot to learn. Our doctrines inform our faith experience. And sound doctrine is essential in order to have a zeal for God that isn't without knowledge. There's uh, a, a phrase that people say sometimes, it really doesn't matter. And I hear this a lot. It really, look, it, it, okay, so Seventh-day Adventists, we believe this, and Baptists believe this. And we, we believe this about the state of the dead, for example. I got Christian friends, they don't believe that. But what really matters is that we love Jesus. That sounds great. But it's a well-crafted lie. Great Controversy 597 says, it is impossible for us with the Bible within our reach to honor God by erroneous opinions. It'd be different if I didn't have the opportunity. But the Bible's within my reach. And why don't I know these things? Because I prioritize other things over knowing why I believe what I believe. Many claim, I'm reading in Great Controversy still, many claim that it matters not what one believes if his life is only right. But the life is molded by the faith. Do you understand that? The life is molded by the faith. What you believe about the Bible, what you believe about God and Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation shapes who you are and how you live. And if you have a different understanding, it's going to shape you into a different person. You know who knows this better than anybody? The devil does. And so in the book Desire of Ages, page 671, Ellen White tells us this. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. I mean, seriously, I, I don't understand it sometimes for, for a Seventh-day Adventist to say, well, you know, I've got friends who believe different things about the Bible, but it's no big deal. If it wasn't a big deal, why the devil go about taking time to mess it all up that way? Because he knows that if I can get somebody thinking the wrong thing about God, I can turn their whole experience. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character. This morning, I want to talk about the importance of Adventist doctrine. This afternoon, I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about what we call Adventist eschatology. Last days, why? I mentioned last night, and I haven't mentioned this morning. One of the things that has prompted my thinking upon these lines and what I'm presenting is watching my own children grow up and leave home and come to that place in life where they're not under the shadow of mom and dad anymore. 
and it's got to be their decision. And they wrestle with these kinds of things. Why it's so important that we keep the Sabbath. Why do we make a big deal about that? And all this end time prophecy stuff. And incidentally, I know for most young people, my own young people, my own children included, last day's talk is just uncomfortable and even scary. And it shouldn't be. You start talking today to people, and I'm going to guess that half of this room even, hey, let's talk about, I'm going to come here and I'm going to talk about Russia and Ukraine and what's happening over there. And the fact that things are falling apart in this country is like, man, I got to go. A lot, of, a lot of people, in fact, a number of you in the room are thinking, I'm not even married yet. That's what young people tend to think. In fact, Richard, again, Pastor Richard O'Phil used to say he would go and, and speak places, and he actually would take these surveys of how many people, what they felt about the Jesus coming soon. Were they happy about the fact that Jesus was going to come soon or the idea of Jesus coming soon? And, he, and in those days, he said he would hand out paper. He'd have them fill out little, you know, um, secret ballots, secret surveys, and they turn these papers in. And he'd get these answers like, I'm not married yet. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm not finished with school. I'm, I'm wanting to, you know, establish something here in this life. I haven't even had my opportunity to live yet. But then there are these other, these other papers that said, I sure hope he comes soon. He said, you could always tell him because they were written with a shaky hand. Right? Somebody who's lived their life and now they're old. And now it's okay for Jesus to come because I'm in the aches and pains and I've done what I think I'm going to do. It's, it's, it's a sad reality. It shouldn't be that way. So we're talking about that more this afternoon. But I want to tell you this morning, the life is molded by the faith. And it's essential that we understand what we believe from Scripture and why it's so important. So what I'm going to do this morning, which is totally crazy, I have been kicking myself the whole time even thinking about doing it, but I'm going to try it. And I'm looking at the clock there. I'm going to cover three, what I think are the three key Adventist doctrines. I know it's supposed to be five, the five S's. I think there are three key Adventist doctrines, and the Sabbath isn't one of them. And so I'm going to try to crash through this in the next 30 minutes. The law, the sanctuary, and the great controversy. These themes are unique to Seventh-day Adventism, and they shape everything. And incidentally, I know somebody may say, well, wait a minute, you're going to do all that. You're not going to talk about Jesus. If you're not talking about Jesus when you talk about the law, if you're not talking about Jesus when you talk about the sanctuary, and if you're not talking about Jesus when you're talking about the great controversy, I don't know what church you're part of. I hear this. I've done evangelistic meetings. and I've heard this from Seventh-day Adventist members. We do this whole series, usually the ones who aren't coming. And always comment, the backseat drivers who have so much to say, I've been in evangelism training forever. And, and, and I mean, at least 20 years. And there's always those members that say that have all kinds of opinions about how we ought to evangelize, what we should do, or shouldn't do, knocking on doors or not, or whatever else. They're the people who don't go. Like, how do you have so much knowledge about what you never do? But I've had people say, we do this whole evangelistic series and we spend not one night on the plan of salvation. That's a Baptist mindset. And what I mean by that is Seventh-day Adventists understand a breadth to salvation. And I'm not trying to throw stones, okay? A breadth of salvation that other churches don't understand. 
You say, you're, say, you're just saying that because you're an Adventist. No, I'm saying that's why I became an Adventist. My family left the church. I started going to different churches. I could have gone anywhere. I went to the one that made biblical sense. So I want to talk about the law for a minute, because this, this is fascinating to me, this law thing where, where, you know, if you have ever tried to share with a non-Adventist friend, this is, oh, you're, gonna, you're a legalist, and the Sabbath is legalistic because you guys are always worried about keeping the law. Don't you know Jesus died on the cross? And we don't need to keep the law anymore. It was nailed to the cross, this kind of, this is the evangelical argument. And I, was, I've, I just had a young lady come to me, probably in her early 20s, doing Bible work in our conference. We had an event, and she came to me, what do I do? What do I do? What do I say to that? So I'm going to tell you what I told her. First of all, I want to start with a word that we want to talk about the gospel. Let's talk about justification. How many of you know the word justification? Great word, right? Justification. When you're talking about justification, what are you talking about? You're talking about righteousness by faith. You're talking about Christ. You're talking about salvation, right? That's a real salvation word, justification. It's one of those, those positive ones, unlike law. So let's talk about justification for a minute. But let's take it out of the spiritual realm for a minute, okay? So remind me your name again. Norbert? So let's say Norbert, or I, Norbert and I are in a discussion, and you walk in the room right as I'm saying, Norbert, you're just trying to justify yourself. Now, you don't have to be into the conversation to have an idea. What's going on there? What do I mean when I tell him that? You're trying to justify yourself. What's he trying to do? He's trying to defend himself, right? He's trying to maintain his innocence. The word justify, the root word is just. Same as righteousness. It comes from the Greek, in the, in the Bible, it comes from the same Greek root. To be just, to be right, to be upright. When you justify yourself, you're trying to show your right. You're trying to defend your position. Isn't that, do we understand that about what it means to justify? It's not, it's the same thing in the Bible. Only God is the one who has to declare us right. So, we all resonate with the idea that if he's trying to justify himself, he's trying to defend himself from what? From an accusation. Question. If nobody's accusing, is there any need to justify yourself. So don't miss this. Justification, the very concept of justification demands an accusation. It's only in the context of an accusation that you can even talk about justification. You don't need it otherwise. So where in the Christian life, we talk about justification. The Bible's clear. There's justification. We're justified through Christ. Where is the accusation coming from? Stop. Because I know. You're getting, some of you are about to say, the devil. Okay, the devil's an accuser of the brethren, the Bible says, but he's also a liar, and God knows that. So God didn't care a whole lot about his accusation from that standpoint. I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse 19. Romans 3 and verse 19. The Bible says, now we know that whatever the what? Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Verse 23 says, for all have 
sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, in verse 19, I want you to see what's happening there. There's an accusation coming against all humanity from where? From the law of God. Why? Because there's not a human being alive who has not broken it. And the wages of sin is death. So the law of God has arraigned all humanity just because it's a good law. It can't do anything else, right? The law says that this is the picture of what's right and wrong, and you violate it. And, and, and I want you to notice the language especially, that every mouth may be what? Stopped from what? What's the response? What's the natural response when the accusation, a- accusation comes? To justify yourself. What kind of justification can I give against the law of God? Can I say I didn't sin? I've got nothing to say. That's exactly what Paul's telling us here, that every mouth may be stopped. Now, the point I'm making to you today is the concept of justification in the gospel makes absolutely no sense without a law. So I've had Seventh-day Adventists tell me, well, I think our Baptist friends understand the gospel better than we Adventists do. How can you understand the gospel when you don't even have a law? What are you being justified from? What are you being saved from? What did Jesus die the penalty for breaking if there's no law? These are things we need to understand. This is why Jesus, when he spoke that famous text in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he follows up, the Apostle John, by saying God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the very next verse says, he who does not believe is condemned already. God didn't need to send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. The condemnation was already on the world. That's why he sent Jesus. And the condemnation was upon the world because the world had violated the law of God and the law of God couldn't be changed because it governs the right action of every free will being. More than this, the law of God is, as we often say, rightly say, the transcript of God's character. Time doesn't permit me to go into all the verses for that. But I want you to understand that what we see in the person of Jesus Christ when he came to this earth was the embodiment of the Ten Commandments. Like if you could take the Ten Commandments and put it into a person, have a person perfectly in every aspect of their being follow it, where could you possibly get a picture of that? One place. Jesus came and embodied that. Is that not? The hope and the goal of the Christian is to be able to be like Jesus. For people to look at us and see in our lives what they saw in Jesus' life, he simply embodied the law of God. Now, it'd be great if I could just go and do that somehow and ingest it and embody the law. I can't. That's the very purpose. I need a Savior. And the same Jesus who embodied the law lives in the one who accepts him. Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live but Christ lives where in me and the life which i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me the devil understood that it was the law of god that governed the universe and made it christ-like he understood that 
And so from the beginning, his attack was upon the law of God. He's never let up. That's why we come to Revelation. It shouldn't surprise us. You come to Revelation 12 and it says that the dragon was enraged with the woman who keeps the commandments of God. He went to make war against those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Why is he so mad at those who keep the commandments of God? He knows full well that that is a manifestation of the character of God. That's where God needs to bring humanity back to if we're going to live an eternal life. And so Ellen White tells us in the book, Great Controversy, page 582, when we come to the end of time and we get this final conflict between the mark of the beast and the seal of God and all these things going on, she says the last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy over the law of God. That's what the controversy is over. Now I'm going to shift gears into section number two. That was a 10-minute synopsis on the law. I really am struggling with this. I'm not going to do it. I was tempted to use the, 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 the whiteboard, but I just think the room is too big for that, and I don't know, squinty eyes. I was looking at it. Anyway, skip that. When we come to the sanctuary, I want you to understand that we're not talking about something different. In fact, before I dive into it, let's go to, well, as we dive into it, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Keep in mind what we said about the law, because you're going to see it played out here as we talk about the sanctuary. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 9. Again, this is like kind of crash coursing this, so I'm not trying to unpack everything in the sanctuary, but I do want you to see that as the Apostle Paul describes the earthly tabernacle and its services, he makes this point in verse 9. He says, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. You don't even need to, to, to concern yourself with most of that. There's just one word I want you to concern yourself with, and that is the word in the New King James that says symbolic. If you're using the King James, it says a figure. If you were reading it straight from the Greek, it says parabole. What word do you think we get in English from the word parabole in Greek? Parable. You are great students. Parable. What is a parable? A parable is a story that makes a point. And what Paul is saying is that earthly tabernacle was a parable of something. What was it a parable of? It was a parable of the plan of salvation, right? That's not, oh, yeah, of course, because we know the animal sacrifices and the, you know, the lamb and pointing to Jesus. Of course, of course, of course. But I want you to think through some things with me of this entire structure of the sanctuary. There were, there were inside the courtyard, you had the sanctuary itself. Inside the sanctuary were how many apartments? Two apartments. What were they called? Holy place and most holy place. Where's the emphasis? I mean, if you've got two things and one's one thing and the other is most, right? That kind of gives it away. So you've got the holy place and the most holy place. What was the piece of furniture in the most holy place? What was in that piece of furniture in the most holy place? I want you to understand that the law of God was at the very center of the sanctuary. Why? Because 
The sanctuary wouldn't even need to have existed if there wasn't the law of God. Why was it there? Because the law had been broken. And because of the breaking of that law, it required the sacrifice of Christ, right? Typified by all the animals. So in the sanctuary itself, you have the most holy place. And there on the Ark of the Covenant, incidentally, what happened on top of the Ark of the Covenant, Bible students? That's where the Bible says God's presence would come and dwell. Okay, now obviously the Bible writers would say later on, God, the whole, whole heavens can't contain God, much less this little tabernacle. But it was a representation that they understood. So as God's presence settled on top of that Ark of the Covenant, what did that become? A picture of his throne. And what is the foundation of, I was going to say God's throne. What's the sound foundation of any king's throne? His law, right? We talk about government. Government has to be governed by something. <laughs> Laws at the foundation of it. And so this is all represented in the sanctuary at the very heart of it. There's the law of God that's been broken by humanity and requires this extensive plan to remedy the issue. At the heart of the sanctuary was the law of God. Now, what's interesting in the service is those two apartments pointed to a twofold service. When a person would commit a sin, that person would bring a sacrifice representing Christ to the sanctuary. When they came to the sanctuary, they would confess their sin over the head of the sacrifice. In fact, the Hebrew says they would actually bear their weight down, pushing down an animal. It's all just figurative of taking all the burden of sin that I've committed and putting it off on somebody else. Once that was done, the priest would instruct the person who brought the sacrifice on how to kill the sacrifice by cutting the throat, and the priest would catch the blood. I know this is what you want to hear Sabbath morning. This, 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 the, the lessons in this are phenomenal. First of all, okay, let me continue. When the priest took the blood, if you were the one that brought that animal sacrifice, you left at that point with the assurance that your sin was forgiven. Your work was done. But now the priest would go and he would take that blood into the building itself, first into the holy place. In fact, throughout the year, into the holy place. That blood was representative. Bible says in Leviticus 17, the blood represents the life. Now, this is going to sound like a trick question. Whose life did that blood represent? You want to say Jesus because the lamb represented Jesus, except for something happened when you confessed your sin over the head of the lamb. You traded places. How did you get to go away free? Because Jesus gave you his life and you he took your sin and died in your place. And so now the blood goes into the sanctuary. The priest would either put thumbprints on the altar, he'd sprinkle some before the veil, standing there as a record of sin, i.e., your sinful life, the sins you've committed. So while you went away free, Who'd the priest represent? Let's not forget, you know, Jesus represented the lamb. He also represented the priest. So as you go away with that promise of forgiveness, Jesus' work isn't done. Jesus now has taken responsibility from you for, for, for your life that you just gave to him. This is conversion. This is what conversion's about. When you accept Christ, 
which I want to hope that everybody here has done today. When a person accepts Christ, Christ from that point takes responsibility for the life of his followers. There's this mindset today that we obtain assurance as Christians by being able to say I'm saved in the past tense or even the present tense which there's a case in which that's true. But there's like, if I can say I'm saved, you know, like my Baptist friends, oh, I was saved 20 years ago. Oh man, I wish I could. And I've had Adventists, Adventists are all confused on this. Ellen White makes a statement that we should never say or feel that be taught to say or feel that we're saved. And some people have taken that to mean we should never be confident in our salvation. But if you read the context, which, Unfortunately, a lot of people just hear something and they build a religion on what they heard without ever doing personal investigation. Ellen White does make a statement, but she makes it in the context of a once saved, always saved kind of saying I'm saved. Like I did this thing and so now it doesn't matter what I do. And nobody should ever be taught to say or feel that. <laughs> but when the sinner confessed his sin or her sin, when that blood was taken and the priest took that life into his hands, from that point, he took responsibility. So I have confidence today. Listen to me clearly, brothers and sisters. God is not done with the work in this man yet. I hope, or I'm lost. I still have things in my life that are not Christ-like. How about you? But that doesn't trouble me. Because Jesus took my case a long time ago. You understand what I'm saying? My assurance comes from the fact that my life's in his hands. Wherever it is in his whole process, doesn't matter to me. I know Jesus is going to finish what he started. So I'm not going to sweat that. The important thing, and that was illustrated in the sanctuary. The priest then takes that blood into the first department of the sanctuary. It's on record there. Because in the bigger scheme of things, which we're going to touch on here as I shift gears momentarily, the devil's not going to sit idly by and have you go away having sinned and yet com be completely forgiven, and yet he and his host of angels cast out of the kingdom into this earth. Like there's a flag on that flag. He's not going to stand for that. So once a year at the end of the year, there was a special service called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, there were two goats. One was the Lord's goat, one was the scapegoat. The Lord's goat was slain it was killed and the blood was taken from that goat into the most holy place but a unique thing happened on the day of atonement nobody confessed any sin over the head of that goat that's unlike any other sacrifice okay when i confessed the sin over the head of the lamb what did that mean that means that became my sinful life that that blood represented but if there was no sin confessed over the head now whose life that blood on the Day of Atonement represented the life of Christ that was taken into the most holy place first, sprinkled above the law of God to bear witness that that life was in perfect harmony with the law of God. And then from that point on the Day of Atonement, that blood was put everywhere that other blood had been throughout the year, showing, illustrating that the righteous life of Christ now took the place of the life of those who trusted in him. In figure, it showed that, but in reality, it was pointing to the fact that in his work as our mediator and high priest, 
Jesus is going to take sin out of the life of the believer. At the end of that service, the sin would be confessed over the head of the scapegoat. And the scapegoat was taken out in the wilderness to die, taking us down to the end of the millennium where Lucifer finally pays the price for everything he's done and takes full responsibility for instigating this stuff. All of that in the sanctuary. That whole broad picture of the great controversy is in the sanctuary. The challenge against God in the beginning, the challenge against God's law, which is God's character, which is God's government, all of those accusations that Satan made. When you go to Revelation 12, and it talks about Satan, it says that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Called the devil and Satan. These are names that he's called. We always think of these as proper names, but they both mean something. Devil and Satan. Satan means adversary and devil means acute false accuser or slanderer. And John in Revelation says, this is what he's called by. The one who instigated all of this war in heaven because he slandered God, because he misrepresented God and his law and his government. What is the net effect in the mind of us? How does, the, how does Satan's slander affect us? We get a glimpse in the Garden of Eden, right? When the devil came to Eve and he said, did God really say you can't eat of every tree of the garden? Have you ever thought about that question? I was teaching it in Sabbath school. We had a Sabbath school lesson not too long ago in the fall. Has, did God really say, have you ever had this growing up? where you were perfectly happy to grow up in the home you lived in with your mom and dad's rules and curfew and everything else. Let's say you had curfew at 10 o'clock, never bothered you until you got around some friends and they said, dude, does your mom and dad really expect you to be home by 10? What happens in your mind at that point? Huh? Maybe, maybe they're asking too much of me. Maybe that's not fair. When we're tempted to say, well, I don't know about this certain standard of the church or belief of the church. Maybe that's just their idea. It sounds like an overreach. It sounds like they're being too strict. That's just the same argument of the serpent. Toying with our minds. With these leading us to think that maybe God wouldn't ask something so unreasonable as that. And let me be clear this morning. We can talk all about the death on the cross. Praise God for the death on the cross. But if the questions in the minds of God's creatures about who he is, about his rules that make up his character are not answered, the controversy can never end. The, the controversy isn't just what Satan started. The controversy now exists over who God is and over God's laws and over God's ways. Are they really the best ways? And the truth of the matter is the reason that we still, present company included, struggle with sin is because we don't always believe they're the best ways. And sometimes we know a little better. And that's why we do what we do. And so as you come into the great controversy, what you have in this grand scheme of things with this sanctuary picture is these questions about God's law, i.e. His, his character, his person, his goodness. They've got to come to an end. 
The cleansing of the sanctuary shows us that at the end, the blame will finally rest where it needs to on the head of the scapegoat. God's going to cleanse his people from their sin. The word atonement, we throw these words around, these theological words like, oh, the atonement. What does atonement mean? But there's a little word we use when we talk about atonement. We say it's kind of like at one man, right? At one man. Because atonement is taking two parties at odds and bringing them together. Not a hard concept. So let me ask this question. Why do we need atonement? Why aren't the two parties are God and us? Why aren't we together? What is in the middle keeping us apart? If sin is in the middle keeping us apart, then how in the world can we ever have atonement? There's only one way. Not too hard. Something has to come out. Okay, Jesus does what? That's great. I love Jesus. What did Jesus do to make atonement? If sin is in between us, Jesus can die on the cross and live a perfect life, but sin is still between us and God unless somebody takes the sin out. And the two can come together. Folks, the gospel is about taking sin out of the life of the believer, i.e. affecting at one month. We've got people who say, wait, wait, wait a minute. You're talking about the fact that we're going to stop sinning? We better. And, 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 and here's what's funny. We have these debates in the church about whether or not we can stop sinning here. But at least as far as I know today, no Seventh-day Adventist believes we're going to be sinning there. Well, how's it going to change there if it can't change here? No, God can't do it here. Is he going to do it there? Well, he's going to have to. Okay. My God isn't limited here any more than there. The effect of the atonement. This is what the sanctuary is about. God is going to remove Jesus Christ in his work as mediator. Is going to replace those sinful lives with his righteousness. Remove sin, and in so doing, place the responsibility where it belongs. When that response, keep this in mind, as the sin, in the picture of the great controversy, as the sin was transferred into the sanctuary, which represented the government of God, who gets the blame for sin in the world? Just ask any person on the street. Like, yeah, I don't know why. If they have any belief of God, what, who's responsible? If there's a God, why all this suffering? Who gets the blame for it? Read, in, read your insurance policy. <laughs> Act of God, right? God has taken the blame for the existence of sin from the beginning. When the controversy is concluded, it will be clear that he holds no responsibility in the matter. The sin and the responsibility of it will be finally put on the head of the scapegoat. And he's going to do that by removing sin in the lives of his people. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more this afternoon. I want you to notice as we're going to wrap this up this morning in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. This really brings us right to the day we live in. It, it, in fact, again, we just had a, a quarterly on the book of Hebrews. What a fascinating book this is. You realize that Hebrews is the only book that gives us a clear view on what Jesus did once he ascended to heaven. You understand that our Christian brothers and sisters who do not believe in the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary like we do have no answer for why Jesus isn't back yet. Oh, Jesus died on the cross. He fixed it. Then why all the pain and suffering? Why do the wars go on? Why do the things come? 
because there's still something that, that the Lord is finishing up. But if you, no, 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 he finished it at the cross. What have we been doing for 2,000 years? What's he been doing for 2,000 years? In the words of Elijah, maybe he's on a long journey. Maybe he's taking a nap. The Seventh-day Adventists have an answer for that. No, he's, fi- he's finishing this up, and he's preparing to come to this earth, and he wants you to be able to receive him in peace. So in this context of talking about the work of Christ, the Apostle Paul says in verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, that is the earthly tabernacle, which are copies of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Praise God, Jesus is appearing in the presence of God for us, on our behalf, as our representative. Verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He would then have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, notice, now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Don't miss that verse. Paul says he has appeared. He's speaking about the first advent of Jesus. His coming to this earth, his dying on the cross. Why did he do it? For this reason to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus came to get rid of sin. The apostle continues. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who wait for him, how? To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, what? Without sin. New King James says, apart from sin. I believe the New American Standard, uh, there are several versions here. Without sin, apart from sin, without reference to sin, not to deal with sin. Those are the different translations, how they announce that. The point is this. Now, since his crucifixion, Jesus came to this earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for the purpose of putting away sin and effecting atonement. He ascended into heaven now as our high priest for the purpose of putting away sin and effecting the atonement. But when he comes the second time, he's not coming to deal with sin. That's the work of a priest. And Jesus will not be a priest forever. There's coming a time where he lays off the priestly robes and puts on the kingly robes. When Jesus comes again, he's not coming as a priest. He's coming as a king. Priests deal with sin. Kings execute judgment. Jude says when Christ comes again with 10,000 of his saints, he's coming to execute judgment. What that tells us is now is the time in the whole scheme of things that Jesus is doing a work for every, not, this is not just for Adventists, <laughs> for any human being who would be ready when he comes again. Doing that work of putting away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now he's accessible. Now he's available. And there's a multitude of people, I dare say inside the church, I was going to say outside and outside the church, who don't know how to connect with Christ and have him complete that work in their lives as we face. We're on the eve of his coming. But we've been entrusted as Seventh-day Adventists. These are things we need to understand as a people. Ellen White says, finishing with this statement, the great controversy 488, the sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. It concerns every soul living upon the earth. It opens to view the plan of redemption 
bringing us down to the very close of time. We've seen that in the sanctuary, in that model. And revealing the triumphant issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. It is of the utmost importance that all should thoroughly investigate these subjects and be able to give an answer to everyone that asks them a reason of the hope that is in them. My desire is that we as Seventh-day Adventists would prioritize spiritual things, not just a nebulous relationship with Christ, but a relationship with Christ based on what he's taught us and what he tells us in his word, the living word, the transforming word of God. We'll talk this afternoon a little bit more about how that applies to us in this day and age of earth's history. And I want to talk specifically about Adventist lifestyle and how that reflects on this whole big scenario, end time scenario. But this morning, I just want to encourage you. <laughs> Make your faith your own. If you haven't done it yet, don't live in a, hey, I learned this from somebody else, and I've always grown up in Adventist, and I always thought. Make your religion your own. Christ needs to be your personal Savior. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we meditated upon these things this morning, Lord, as always, you have spoken through clay. But your spirit can communicate to our hearts and minds far more clearly than my lips could do. And I ask, Lord, that you would communicate and continue to reveal to our hearts and minds the truth that you have for us to understand, the practical truths that will connect us more closely with Christ. I thank you, Lord, for each one in this room. There are those here today who have not yet made a full surrender to Christ. I don't know what's hindering, Lord. You do, and I pray your Holy Spirit would continue to strive with each one of us that we would daily choose to live for Jesus and be among those eagerly waiting when he comes again. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.